0: to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Anouk de Ronde at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences and the NFI.
1: And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hello, Glenn. Yeah. Welcome back for another episode on our little mini-series on activity-level stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, in, in fact, I was, I was really glad with how the last episode went. Uh, we got some... Positive feedback from various people. Oh, good! Uh, yeah, and, and not just people in the profession too. There um, had a uh, a lawyer reach out who's working the case, and another lawyer reach out who's working another case on, and they both involve activity level. They checked it out. They they liked the episode. Yeah, I, I was able to go look, just listen to this and check it out. And then uh, let's see, there was a DNA analyst who is very familiar with activity level issues and framing those sorts of propositions and listened to it. And just a, n- a number of people had texted and said, hey, I just caught the last episode. It was really good. Looking forward to the, the next one. So here we are.
1: Yeah. You know, um, so real quick before we get in, a couple of things on that. But I want to say a big thank you to our newest patron on patreon.com. Uh, you can search for us there at Double Loop Podcast. So thank you to Mark for uh, being our newest subscriber there. And a reminder to anyone out there, you can also support the show that way, or you can support it by going to our website, wpodcast.com. Uh, we got a little merchandise store where you can get T-shirts and glasses and all sorts of, of nifty little things, neckties with fingerprints on them. Um, but, uh, you know, it was kind of funny uh, after recording that episode and getting it up, all of a sudden I see a tweet about... Aging fingerprints. Uh, There's Mm. new research coming out uh, about that topic. Right. And, you know, that stuff's been around. And we, we, I think we talked quite a bit about during that episode about uh, the uncertainty that comes with determining how long ago a fingerprint was left. And uh, when I saw the tweet and, you know, skimmed the article, it made me want to say, well, okay, once some sort of uh, study comes out demonstrating that this might be feasible, there's nothing wrong with that, aging a fingerprint in that fashion. We were more more um, focused on uh, an examiner trying to guess the age of a fingerprint with no other analysis other than just looking at it.
2: Yeah, and to be really clear, I, I was really specific in my language in that episode. I kept saying... Nothing can be said through a visual examination. That was the right. word I kept using. And because I, – and I hope maybe we might get to another episode in this series of activity level and maybe we'll review that paper, which would be good because you know, the that technique like the other ones that showed promise and there has been some promise using instrumental techniques, although they typically are destructive and they involve – usually gcms of some sort but yeah maybe we could take a look at that paper because i i read it and i thought that there was uh some promise in that too
1: and even the paper itself didn't have like very strong language it was it was it was fairly limited language in describing you know how successful it was so um yeah and, and that, um, and that fits And It's a difficult problem. I mean, even in a situation like this where they're actually measuring the degradation of different, uh, lipids or other, uh, you know, parts of, you know, the residue left behind, it's tough to know what was there to start with theoretically or what environmental conditions may have sped up or slowed down the degradation. So, yeah, difficult problem overall. All right, well, we are very happy to have a guest here this week to continue our discussion on on this activity-level topic, uh, so let's cut over to our conversation with Anouk Daronde.
2: All right, so we would like to welcome our guest today, Anouk Deronde from Netherlands, Holland, to our listeners, and uh, Anouk, welcome.
0: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
2: Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Uh for our listeners, uh Anouk and I met, I don't know, what was it? Uh 4 years ago in uh, in China.
0: Yeah, 2016 in Beijing. It was. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, we we met at a research symposium called the International Fingerprint Research Group IFRG. So the group that's been meeting since I I think the 80s or so uh and it's all these researchers from around the world, from different countries, who do fingerprint research—people uh, like Christoph Shampo, Chris Leonard, Claude Rue, uh, Yossi Almag from Israel—people from 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 all over. Usually, a couple reps from from almost every country that does research in fingerprints. They meet together to discuss research in um, fingerprint topics and a nuke and you had a colleague there also from from your school uh well we in english we call him ward yeah but but in dutch it's pronounced you vart. say it? vart
0: <laughs> vart yeah vart
2: yeah okay. <laughs> and, uh, and and both of you were there with uh, Marcel Dupuy which yeah. uh, we've actually had on the show before and oh, okay. We interviewed him some years back when we maybe our first or second year of the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I think that was the first year. Yeah. That sounds about right. And uh, we need to get him on again. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, I but, think
0: he would be delighted to do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, but Nuke, uh, I was fascinated by your research because you cover a topic that I'm I'm personally really interested in. And if you would, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about? Oh, well, actually, why don't we back up, Eric? Why don't you ask the uh, the very famous question?
1: Well, first, Nuke, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to um, you know to our audience? Uh, you know the the work you do and and uh, and where you uh, work.
0: Uh, Yes, I I will. Well, I am Anouk de Ronde, and I work at the Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences and the Netherlands Forensic Institute. And what I do now is a PhD on finger marks at activity level. Uh, But I started not in forensics at all, so as a bachelor in mathematics. Hmm. But after the bachelor... I thought mathematics, studying mathematics is quite theoretical, and I was looking <laughs> uh,
2: like Inborn. like
0: proving um, all kinds of proofs and statements. And afterwards I was looking for a master in which I could uh, apply my mathematical, mathematical knowledge to a more uh, applied science field. and that's how I came in contact with a master in forensics. And when I was there, I was very enthusiastic about the master. So I applied and then I enrolled in the master, and it was a great uh, field for me to uh, apply the mathematical knowledge I, I uh, gained during my bachelor's. Yeah, after the master, I started at the Netherlands Forensic Institute um, at the DNA kinship department because there I also did my thesis. Mm-hmm. And there I worked on validating uh, software that they use uh, in the kinship analysis. And then I was looking for a PhD project because I wanted to broaden my uh, skills, my research skills. Yeah, so I applied uh, for a job, um, for a PhD job uh, in which they were looking for PhDs to study how to gain more information from finger marks besides source level information. And uh, I cut the uh, finger marks at activity level part of the project. So that's how I uh, ended up doing this PhD uh, project.
2: So it, it, nope. it sounds like for you, uh, you were excited about having real world problems to apply your mathematics to.
0: Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very interesting, and my my wife was also mathematics. Uh, uh, got her bachelor's in mathematics. So, oh, okay. uh, so for back with the DNA stuff, you, we're talking about with kinship. So it's like a familial. Yeah. Was there? You know, there's been lots of news over the past couple of years, uh, especially I mean here in the states about uh, different crimes being solved with that. In your work, was, was there any big cases in Europe that have had you know, similar success?
0: Um. Not during. Uh, When I worked there, but uh, we were uh, at that time busy with uh, the uh, MH17. I don't know if you say it like that in um, English, but the big uh, airplane crash in uh, uh, Ukraine.
1: Right, right. Right, because then you have to, they wouldn't necessarily have their DNA on file. So you'd have to link up between uh, living family members.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very so that's, that's
0: where they were very busy with. I was uh, working on validating software uh, that they used for yeah, kinship analysis and also on mixture analysis. So, if you have a mixture a profile of DNA um, right. and then a search with it in a database, uh, what are the probabilities to find, for instance, uh, relatives present in a database?
1: All right. and yeah. and just that that explanation of uh you know you know of your uh, your work history also kind of answers the that traditional question we have of how do you get how did you get into fingerprints and and it seemed like a uh, a journey an unexpected journey if you will uh from uh from math through dna and and into uh, uh into this world so yeah definitely um, yeah it was uh, just
0: by luck i guess right <laughs> But I really (laughs) like uh, uh, finger marks as a field of science.
2: Absolutely. One of the things we're going to discuss in your paper is, and you must have been surprised by this, just how little research in this area there was at the time, and that it's just wide open for you for research projects.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of the first things that I was very surprised of because I started this project not knowing anything about the topic. So I was familiar with, um, uh, how they did, um, activity level analysis for DNA, for instance. Right. Um, and I was looking, uh, for literature to see what they, what was already done in finger marks. And then it turned out that it was really nothing. So that right. is, it's, it's really a field that was not explored yet. And that's, for me, it's perfect because I have a very broad topic, and I can do I can research actually whatever I I'm interested in because it's all new. So it's very uh, <laughs> excited to start it with to start with this topic.
2: Yeah, from, wow. from a research perspective, it's amazing that you just have this open field, literally just a a clear field with no paths, and you can just pick whatever path you want and mow mow through the field that's yeah. just wide open that, that must be very exciting
0: yeah and it's it's crazy if if you uh, see how much can be done uh on the topic then it's uh, i i think it's kind of uh strange that it's not um picked yeah. up yet yeah
1: yep oh you know, that's that's definitely a thing I, I've talked with about, um, and especially those message boards online and stuff of, of people just starting their careers in forensic science and trying to figure out which one to pursue. If uh, if there is an interest in actual research, you know, fingerprints or latent prints is, <clears throat> is absolutely a, a really great one to get into. I mean, DNA is you know so researched by uh, yeah. You know, by PhDs, for, you know, and you have to kind of get up to that level. But there's lots of stuff that can be done, you know, right away uh, in, uh, in fingerprints. Yeah, definitely. So, so um, let's get into uh, the, uh, the paper itself. Uh, this is in Forensic Science International uh, here just last year in 2019. The Evaluation of fingerprints Given Activity-Level Propositions um, uh, with Yourself. Oh, yeah, um, I'm going to let. I'm gonna, we,
2: we, we might need her to pronounce these because if if I pronounce that second one, it's going to be base cockshorn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I was just going to yes, which makes was, a great porn name. Pass pass that over to a nuke for your your co-authors.
0: <laughs> yes, my co-authors are Bas de Cockshorn. Yeah, close enough. Close enough. Uh, Christiane de Poot, mm-hmm. and Marcel de Puits. And that's Marcel Dupuis, like you pronounced uh, earlier, uh, who also joined the IFRG meeting.
2: Oh, so right. we give it, we've given him a French spin to his name.
0: Yeah, I think he does it also himself.
2: Yeah, okay, <laughs> in, but it, in, 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 English.
0: English. <laughs>
1: in Dutch it's De Puit.
0: the Puits.
1: The, the, the Pout.
0: Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, okay. Uh, just going through the you know the very just uh, initial aspects of the paper uh it asks um you know what kinds of information besides the identity of the individual can we get out of the latent fingerprint left behind on a surface to answer other questions that have that have to do with identity i guess that would probably be the best way to to place to start is the um well i guess first off that this isn't looking at whether or not the ID is correct or not. So, assuming that the identification is correct, and assuming that the the fingerprint left behind, the mark left behind, uh, you know, wasn't like a forgery or you know a secondary transfer, uh, mm-hmm. what a, you know, what can we move on from there? And I'll just list off here initially the the other uh, things that uh, are being considered. That be, uh, you know, that transfer process, the persistence and ability to recover the marks, but, uh, really, uh, getting into things with the, uh, position of the hand during placement, location of the finger marks on the item, the area of the skin that's left behind, and the direction, uh, the direction of the fingerprints and the pressure applied. Uh, Now, the paper gets into you know these Bayesian networks on, and how that can apply to all that. Glenn, what do you think? That, get, getting into the an actual example, the examples listed here yeah. with the balcony example is that a good place to start?
2: Yeah, in fact, let, definitely let, let's start with that because we'll we'll come. I think we can talk about the Bayesian stuff towards the end because I right. think what listeners really need to know is. There's a complex way to do this. There's a formal complex mathematical way to approach this, which is what the paper is about. But putting that aside, there's actually just more of a structured, basic way to approach this evidence without the mathematics. And so let's, yeah, let's, Anouk, if you could, why don't you talk about the the balcony case example?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we um, introduced this topic by uh, one example, and um, that's an example in which a burglary took place in an apartment and there were finger marks found on a, a balcony railing and um, the police apprehends a suspect and the suspect uh, tells the police that he was, was present in the apartment because he visited the woman that was living there and then he smoked a cigarette on the balcony and w- while the police expects that he climbed the balcony uh, during the uh, intrusion or the burglary. So uh, in a case like this, the question is not whether his finger marks were present on the balcony railing, but it is the question changed to is the balcony climbed by the suspect or uh, did the suspect lean on the balcony while smoking a cigarette? And we use this case example in order to explain all variables that should be taken into account when looking to such a case. So, for example, at first, the finger marks have to transfer to the railing. So if you touch a surface, there's a probability that you leave your finger mark. But there's also a probability that your finger mark will not end up on the surface. Then to find the finger mark, the finger mark has to persist. So, for instance, on a balcony railing, you have to take into account the uh, weather circumstances, how much time was between the climbing and the recovery of the finger marks, but also how much time was uh, between the uh, smoke, the alleged smoking of the cigarettes, and the recovery. Right. Uh, so that's all those first. Uh, factors that influence the probability to find a finger mark. But then what is, I think, more interesting are the factors that influence uh, the interpretation to actually look at the questions whether the suspect climbed the balcony or leaned on the balcony. And for instance, one of these variables is direction. So you can look at what uh, direction the finger marks point point. Uh, For instance, if the finger marks point towards the balcony, so from outside to inside, then uh, you can determine what is the probability that we find the finger marks in this direction if the suspect climbed the balcony or what is the probability if we find this direction if the suspect leaned on the balcony. And that's how how you can decide on all these different uh, variables you can assign a probability of the occurrence of this variable under the different hypotheses
2: right so for for listeners they you know the actual fingerprint examiners might be able to make an analogy of the cases they've worked where they might have found fingerprints for example on a car window near mm-hmm. the top of the window and so this might It might be some of the same questions. Are they in a position and a direction such that you'd expect to see them like this if the person was outside of the vehicle reaching in, or if they were inside the vehicle uh, trying to touch the top of the window? And just like in your balcony railing example, I imagine it'd be very difficult to have the left and the right hand pointing inwards if you were standing on the balcony, smoking, leaning on it, as opposed to there'd be a higher probability if you had climbed up the balcony.
0: Yes, yes, but that's um it's important to note that it's always very important to take into account the case circumstances. So for instance, if it's a very low railing, then it's possible that someone for instance leaned backwards. And then right, those right. probabilities might change. So it's very important to to incorporate the case circumstances and to determine the probabilities within these case-specific information.
2: Which is often information that the fingerprint analyst may not even have access to.
0: Yeah, and that's a difficult point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: No, so the the one of the points here I wanted to point out that I saw in the paper was that um, in here you're not – you're not assigning what the probability actually is for any of these activities, for um, climbing versus, or, or like what it means if the fingerprints are pointing in versus out. You're just uh, providing the framework here, and then um, depending on the circumstances of a specific case, if you can determine those those numbers, those probabilities, they can be uh, inserted uh, into this model.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So at this point, we decided to first determine the framework to work in, and we wanted to present a framework that could be broadly applied uh, to any case with finger marks, and um, that's the use of Bayesian networks. And we proposed a Bayesian network for this balcony case example, and I think for every case example uh, you need maybe an adjustment to this patient network, but it's a good starting point to start with and then see whether your case circumstances need an additional variable or one variable can be left out or it, so the network can be changed depending on your case.
1: Right. Yeah, because like, uh, you know, Glenn, like you were saying about being backwards, you know, I can imagine, uh, you know, someone kind of leaning back and kind of half sitting on the balcony and then putting their hands on either side as they're sitting down there, that would be you know very much facing inward, but they were already on the balcony just smoking a cigarette and kind of like a, I don't know, like a, a James Dean kind of, you know, leaning right. back pose, okay. but,
2: or. So that would not be a very safe balcony railing. <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Uh, or if, if they had climbed up, and then we're leaving, and had left more of fingerprints as they were leaving. That would be, you know, facing out. So it, it it there's lots of different scenarios that do come into play here, and um, you know, the more information you have, the better you would be able to fit all, all these different numbers.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. No. and it's important that um, to combine all these variables. So now we discussed the variable direction. But for instance, the location of your finger marks on the balcony may also influence the interpretation and the evaluation at activity level. And for instance, if you're sitting on the balcony and then leaning, maybe your hands will be wider apart than is possible when climbing a balcony, for instance. So that's what the factor location provides uh, information on.
1: Whereas in your paper, if uh, the ha- the hand placement was next to the drain pipe that someone could climb up that 's one thing, but if they were on the opposite side where there 's no real way to climb, then that you know, may mean something else
0: yeah yeah definitely yeah
2: so if if we could you know, we, you, you mentioned about assigning different probabilities to these variables. So listeners who might not be familiar with, with these sort of Bayesian networks, Nuke, if you could just briefly describe the two different ways that you could assign probabilities. What, what would you need to, to assign probabilities? How would one go about that with and without the data?
0: Um, well, there are multiple possibilities to enter the probabilities into the network. The first possibility is to do that based on your experience as an expert. So for a sub- instance a
2: subjective probability.
0: Yeah, that's ki- kind of called the subjective probability. and that's uh, for instance, if I'm a finger mark or if I'm a police officer and I saw uh, inward pointing finger marks, uh, let's say 60 percent uh, of the cases I did on climbing a balcony, Um, then I can determine that the probability will be 6 out of 10 that uh, you will find inward-facing finger marks, for example. But the difficulty with this is that your experience is only based on cases in which you don't know the true answer. Right. Right. Uh, So so that's quite difficult. And that's why recently there's a lot of discussion about how to assign these probabilities because it's quite difficult. And uh, another uh, option is to perform uh, case-specific experiments. So, for instance, let uh, 20 people climb a balcony and let 20 people lean on a balcony and smoke a cigarette and just observe how the finger marks uh, what direction, for instance, is of the finger marks. And then you can say, from climbing a balcony, I saw, for instance, uh, 19 of the 20 people resulting in inward-facing uh, finger marks. So then your probabilities are based on real experimental data. So that's another probability. And we but, might
2: call that in, in, an empirical probability based on empirical data.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's possible, yeah. But you can also imagine that it's quite difficult to perform experiments for all uh, your variables in your case. So sometimes it's also possible if, uh, for instance, previous research already commented on uh, certain probabilities that are kind of likely to your case circumstances, then maybe you can see whether these probabilities can also be used in your case, and, and then you have to uh, really be specific about the differences between the case example presented in the literature and your case example to see whether these probabilities are actually suitable for your own case. So that's also a probability a possibility. And another thing you can do is um, applying a sensitivity analysis and that is um, sort of trying a range of probabilities to see whether the final uh, likelihood ratio is uh, how dependent it is on ah. the variable at question. Yeah, so that's I, mean, also I, w- I had
2: I had not heard that sort of application. Is that something that comes from DNA?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I- Interesting. Well, I'd never, I'd never from DNA, about
0: that. it's more like um, in general activity level experiments that's yeah. how um uh, yeah there uh, there's a paper from duncan taylor
2: ah, um, from, from australia
0: yeah from 2018 <laughs> and there they describe uh, several possibilities to assign these probabilities and uh, also an order of preference in it so that's maybe interesting if you're interested in assigning probabilities to these kind of cases
2: so uh, one 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 quote I really liked from the, the paper, Anouk, mm-hmm. uh, this is on page four of the paper. It says that if the probability to obtain a distorted finger mark differs for two activities, this information may be of great activity for the activity level interpretation. And this is referring to... Uh, there is a section here on on assessing, for example, pressure in the the latent print, mm-hmm. and what I really liked about this is that it, it it nails down the idea that. If the probability is about equal for both of these activities, and it's really not that informative, but the probability is very different for the two activities and can be informative on actually how the object was handled, manipulated, or those kinds of circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of of having effectively very different probabilities and outcomes?
0: Yeah. So if you have a variable... For instance, the the pressure distortion, I myself find it a quite difficult variable because there's not a lot of research done into, well, let me say it another way. I find it a quite difficult variable because from a finger mark, it's very difficult to observe the pressure that is applied uh, when leaving the finger mark. So I prefer to use, for instance, the direction as an example. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that if two activities have a total different probability for a direction of the finger mark, for instance, the balcony example from climbing and leaning, where we expect that climbing mostly provides inwards pointing finger marks and leaning uh, provides mostly outwards pointing. Finger marks. Oh, this is only on logical reasoning that I talk about. It. It's not that I tested it experimental, just to be clear. Um, but if these probabilities differ uh, significantly, then uh, your likelihood ratio will be higher. So if the probabilities are quite close to each other, then it's um, quite diff- difficult to differentiate between the two activities based on that certain variable. Yeah, Is and, that and learned, so Glenn?
2: yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. So this okay. this really ties into what you were just talking about this concept of sensitivity that you mentioned because the the sensitivity testing will tell you which variables are more I I, I think important because you'll have uh, greater differences in probabilities between the different activities. So yep. some variables matter because they they have very different probabilities to observe under different circumstances but some variables perhaps are less important or or impact the outcome less because the probabilities don't differ as much or have a, a wider range of probabilities you might observe under those different circumstances yeah. is that fair
0: yeah i think that's fair but i think uh, you have to be um careful to um because if variables Quite show the same probabilities uh, for two activities, then that's also informative.
2: Yeah, because true. Because true, true. if
0: uh, in the end the likelihood ratio will not end up that high, that's also informative. That it's maybe not uh, that you're not able to differentiate between those two activities.
1: So one of the things I really like about this, and and I, I know I know I know there's going to be some latent print examiners listening to this that are you know, listening and a bit skeptical about this whole concept. And in that part, some of them maybe been trained to just testify to the identification or exclusion that the result of their comparison without mentioning, you know, other stuff. And for those people, I think that this, this concept breaks down that idea. I mean, we can, we definitely testify, you know, to whether a print is inside or outside of a car and everyone's fine with that. But when we're getting into this activity level stuff, I think it's nice to have this this structured process to break apart, like in just an identification. You can break apart and look at each individual minutiae point to to see whether or not – why you disagree or whether you agree with another person's uh, examination uh, uh, decision. Uh, This looks at all these different parts and, okay, can we agree on this and this and this? And then all together – you know, builds into either a really strong or maybe even a weak uh, result of this activity uh, level. So uh, Anuga, I was curious about is—is is that how you see this whole thing? Is just each little piece you we can argue, and then it all comes together to this final answer, and that has different levels of strength depending on all the different pieces that come together.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think. Uh, what's uh, nice about um, the structure is that if you, you see it in the paper, it's very uh, clear what variables you took into account and how uh, you as a scientist see these variables related to each other. And I think that brings the possibility that it's very transparent, in, uh, for instance, in court to discuss what kind of variables you took into account, how did you do that? Why do you think these ones are important and other ones aren't? And then you have like a framework to, um, yeah, that's very transparent and open, and it can also be discussed in court. And I think that's important because nowadays it's very difficult if someone asks you, well, did this person climb the balcony? You will mention probably some of these variables, but I think it's very good to to place it in such a structure. To see what variables you have to take into account and how to uh, how these are related to each other.
2: Yeah, you, you said a couple of things there. I, I really like that it's transparent and yes. it's, it has a formal structure to it because yeah. the reality is, uh, as a witness on the stand, uh, you and you said you know you might be asked. By the attorney, you know, did the person climb the balcony? That's actually not how they're going to ask the question. What the the way they're going to ask the question is: Are the latent fingerprints positioned on the balcony in such a way that is quote unquote consistent yeah. with the individual climbing the balcony? And and that is actually my my problem, Eric. You said earlier that some examiners, uh, you know, have been trained not to say any of that stuff. My my problem my problem here is that the Examiners should, I, if examiners are going to talk about activity, then they need to do it correctly. And my in my experience and having read quite a few transcripts is they don't do it correctly in a formal, transparent way. They simply answer that consistent question with, well, yeah, sure, it's consistent with. And and feel that's not misleading because they're hedging their bets, but they're not being very transparent or have any formal structure about the propositions they considered. Did they consider the alternative propositions? How would they expect the evidence to appear under different propositions? My my problem is that when examiners do Delve into this area. They often do so without any real structure, information, education, training. And in my opinion, it's a little almost out of scope of their their training and. Uh, job classification, because they are giving an opinion in court without the data, the formality, the structure, or maybe even the education and training to know how to talk about activity level. That's generally my issue when these things come up, which is why I like this paper. It gives a formal structure for the analyst to consider, and i would I would add they should probably get training in this area before beginning to give some opinions,
0: yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and I think I just made a prosecution fallacy or not
2: <laughs> by saying, yeah. "No, you, you did, you know, because yeah. they do present it as a as a posterior." You, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. you're right.
0: I'm sorry, that's a mistake. <laughs> it's not meant no. to be. Yeah, but I and and, and,
2: it's and my statisticians. Uh... Yeah. But but that is my my point, nuke is that they will ask the consistent question, and then they will then make that fallacy, where yeah. they jump to. You heard the expert himself say the guy basically climbed. That's how he left that there. As soon as the witness is off the stand, they will make the that switch to, and this is how it happened.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, it, it'd be almost like uh, uh, you know, just looking at the latent and the known, and coming to a final decision as to source without looking at each of the individual parts just kind of you know it's
2: consistent with his fingerprint
1: yeah consistent with his finger okay yeah yeah yeah. but this is the process of you know that formal asb process of of uh, you know but translated to you know this different application where you're looking at that the direction and the location and the pressure and thinking okay which one matters the most how much do they matter and then all together what does it say so that uh A you're 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 making sure that you consider all these different possibilities, but you're also transparent enough so that if there's a mistake that you've made, someone else can you know zero in and say, Oh god, this is this is the issue, this is the 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 part of this whole consideration that needs to be you know reconsidered and you know can switch the whole uh, the whole uh formula.
2: Yeah, yeah, that that is a great point, Eric. In fact, that's so good I might have to steal that because I, <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I love it because if you wouldn't look at a, a latent print and a known print and go, well, they're consistent with each other, that would be uh, no. I, I can't imagine it's unfathomable an examiner would do that. Then why right. would you do the same thing for source activity and go? Well, yeah, they're consistent with each other. I, it is actually a really, really great point. If you wouldn't do one, then why on earth would you do the other? They're both conclusions, and in some cases, activity level matters more than actual source. When, especially if the person had legitimate well, access and they're not going get crazy now here, Claire. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it's a good point.
0: And the other possibility is that you, as an expert, say. Well, I'm not commenting on this, and that's also what happens nowadays. But I think then the question is still up to court. And I think we have to think about whether the court is able to assign all these probabilities, or that we as a scientist uh, also have the job to help the court if we have the appropriate knowledge to fill in these um, probabilities. Then I think it's your job to comment on it, but in the right way.
2: Right, right. Well said. So, anew, if we could, let's um, let's move on to a second paper. Yeah. And I, uh, Eric and I apologize because we don't have the paper in front of us. In fact, neither of us have read the paper. But I was exposed to the research. Uh, I, I think actually. You presented it the last time I saw you, which was in England last year.
0: Yes, that's right.
2: And, and I'm going to refer to it as the pillowcase research. Yeah. So if we could talk about the pillowcase research and, and then something else, the, the what I'll call the bottle research. I, yeah. I'm really interested because you basically, now you're going in and collecting that empirical evidence for how you might observe fingerprints in certain positions on objects.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So in the first paper we just discussed, we're talking about the broad framework. And now uh, with this paper, we have zoomed in in one variable, and that's the variable location. And we wanted to know whether uh, the location of the finger marks on a pillowcase might provide information about um, uh, the activity that is performed with that pillow, so in this, uh, for this experiment, we went to a Dutch music festival, Lowlands. And um, <laughs> in this weekend, we set up uh, like a big uh, crime scene unit with two bedrooms. And um, people uh, were asked to fi- first fill in a questionnaire. And then they got their hands painted with colors such that we I I
2: assume they were fluorescent paints
0: yeah yeah true yeah fluorescent (laughs) paints and people were did you have a big
2: sign outside the booth saying free ecstasy and you had a line (laughs) thousands of meters long
0: (laughs) no not really (laughs) okay but there was – actually, there were many people that wanted to participate in experiments, so that was fun. Yeah. And, and people were actually waiting for like 30 minutes to one hour to join the experiment, which I was very surprised about. Well, you see a
1: line, you just have to get in line, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. But you're on a music festival where a lot of big bands play music and, uh, yeah. and then just wait in a line to perform to uh, participate in experiments, I think is very surprising, but okay, there were many people that wanted to uh, participate. And um, we asked people to carry out two activities with paint on their hands. So they had to change a pillowcase of a pillow and they had to smother a victim that was lying in a bed, a doll, uh, with a pillow. Uh, as I noted, they had uh, paint on their hands such that we could directly trace where they uh, placed their hands during these activities. And um, the pillowcases were photographed. And then uh, we wanted to see whether the location, purely the location of the finger marks on those pillowcases provided information between these two activities of smothering and changing a pillowcase. Now it's maybe becoming rather technical. But what we did was placing a grid over each picture. So we uh, took a picture and we placed the grid over the picture. And then for each cell in the grid, we noted whether a finger mark was present in that cell or not. And uh, so we transformed each picture into like a mathematical matrix which is like um, a huge table with all kind of numbers representing where the finger marks were present on the pillowcase,
2: like a density map.
0: Uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, you can make density maps out of it. Uh, one matrix is representing one pillowcase, uh, and if you place all those dens- d- those matrices above each other, then you can make like a density map. And I think you saw the picture that I presented yes. there. Yeah. And then we already saw that the location of finger marks on pillowcases that were used for changing were quite different from the location that we observed for finger marks as a result of smothering. So for smothering, most people placed their hands in the middle of the pillowcase and on the sides to grab the pillow at first and then placed their hands on the middle of the pillowcase. And uh, for the changing scenario, we saw that the uh, finger marks were far more uh, randomly distributed around the pillowcase with a higher distribution around the opening just because the pillow had to go into the pillowcase, so they definitely had to open the pillowcase. So that's that explained why there was a higher distribution of finger marks around the opening. Uh, And we wanted to use um, this. Uh, features that we already saw visually uh, and we wanted to assign uh, a number to this and what we did is that for each pillowcase we uh, use the matrix representing that pillowcase and between mathematical matrices you can determine a distance a distance measure so what is expected that if you have a smothering pillowcase then it is closer to other smothering pillowcases, and it's, it has a higher distance to other changing pillowcases. That's kind of the basis of our model. Right. And if you use that feature, you can very clearly separate these two groups of uh, smothering and changing pillowcases based on the location of the finger marks on the uh, pillowcase.
2: Right. So in, in an actual case, and, and a listener might be going for number one, how the hell do you get a fingerprint off of a pillowcase? Yeah. The answer <laughs> to that is one of two. Uh, vacuum metal deposition has been shown to develop fingerprints on, on fabric. So vacuum metal deposition is one way to get latent prints or, or bloody prints if there's blood on the hands uh, that could be deposited on the fabric. Those are the two case instances that I've, I've seen.
1: Yes. Or, or, and, or you could make sure that the perpetrator has fluorescent paint on their fingers. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you
2: com- commit the
1: smothering murder at a uh, tech, tech, EDM yeah.
2: in in uh, <laughs> Holland. <laughs> Perfect. Right. So, all right, and and so if you're the fingerprint examiner and you find uh, some palm prints, for example, in the center of the pillow, and then that's the case evidence what this model tells you and this formal structure is that if the person used the pillow to smother there is a higher probability to observe the finger the palm prints in the center of the pillow than if they you uh, just had their palm prints and fingerprints on there from simply changing the pillowcase so it allows you to assess effectively two different probabilities under two different conditions which of course generates a likelihood ratio and so at the end of this if, when you take into your account your formal structure and all the factors you considered you might say that observing the we we observe the palm print in the center of the pillow this is strong evidence in support uh, that the pillow uh, that the person deposited their palm prints on the pillow uh, during a um, smothering activity, something like that, as opposed to the other proposed activity, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. But it's not that uh, straightforward because some people that uh, changed their pillowcase just padded their pillow up before leaving it on the bed, um, mm-hmm. which also caused palm prints present in the middle of the pillowcase. So it's not, uh, it's, it's correctly that you have to calculate a likelihood ratio and you cannot directly say, oh, we see a palm print in the middle of the, uh, pillowcase. So it's more likely that it's, um, the, the, yeah
2: you, you you observe some exceptions under we'll even say under both perhaps even under yeah. both scenarios, yeah, maybe true. one yeah. person smothered using the edges of the pillowcase and never put their hand in the middle yeah so they're right and so it, when you 're developing these what we 'll call distributions of data mm-hmm. it's where the tails overlap yeah that yeah. when you're when you 're dealing with probabilities. Every now and then, there can be an exception that is under the other scenario and could mislead in in the conclusion. But that's that's a that's a rate of error and that can be measured or that can be at least estimated. Yep. And as long as that's expressed, that there's that there's these possible exceptions, but the higher likelihood is this, as opposed or the likelihood ratio is this as opposed to that. You're right. It's important yep. to make sure that you carefully express that there are exceptions. But again, that's what we call the rate of misleading evidence yeah. and likely ratios. Yeah,
0: you're right. Yeah.
2: So uh, now that's the pillowcase. Most fingerprint examiners probably have not had a pillowcase in <laughs> their career. I'm really excited yeah. if you could talk about the bottle case, because I actually had a bottle case or two in my okay. career. Yeah, And that and, and bottles do come up from time to time. Whether it's bar fights, I imagine if you're in Texas, you're more likely to grab a shiner box, smash it on the bar, and then go attack somebody with, with a bottle. Can you talk about the, the bottle experiment?
0: Yeah, yeah. so um, the most important result from the pillowcase uh, research was that we uh, created a model with which we could study the location of finger marks on two-dimensional items. So it's not only applicable to pillowcases. That's, I think, important to mention because we now also tried to apply this model to uh, uh, letters to determine whether the letter was written or read by a donor. And then the model shows also very good uh, results. So uh, we created a model for two-dimensional items, and then the next step was uh, whether we could use this model for three-dimensional items, like bottles. Uh, So we also carried out an experiment with bottles, and we let people, I think, uh, seven different activities. We let them carry out seven different activities with the use of a bottle, from grabbing it from a shelf, to uh, hitting with it, to use it to stab, kind of, Mm -hmm. and all kinds of other activities. But then uh, we came across the difficulty that in the pillowcase example, we just had a – we could flatten the pillowcase, make a (laughs) picture of it, and then place a raster over it, a grid over it. But for bottles, it's much more difficult because a bottle has, like, a strange shape, the diameter – Uh, Of the body of the bottle is uh, broader than um, at the. uh, It
2: tapers at the top.
0: Yeah, that's how you say it. It tapers at the top. It
2: tapers. Yeah. Okay. It it, it narrows, narrows, and gets skinnier towards the top. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's um, uh, quite difficult because at first we tried to uh, make like a two-dimensional picture out of the bottle. So we tried to make a picture of every centimeter of the bottle and then turn it. And then take a picture again and again and again. And then <laughs> stitch those pictures together. And for the body, it was quite nice. But then the the part where the it neck, narrowed...
2: The neck of the bottle. The, yeah.
0: yeah, the neck. The, for the bottleneck, this this became quite difficult. Because there is an area you cannot see on the picture. And then you have the, the neck that is quite smaller. So that was a difficulty we came across. And I think... Um, that's where we decided uh, to move on to another project, because I think there's a nice solution for this that you can maybe um, uh, use a three dimensional model on the computer and there yeah. just plug in the pictures you take from the from all sides of the uh, bottle to make like a three dimensional model of your bottle where you can see all the finger marks present on the bottle. And then if you can do that, then it's, I think, quite easily with the computer to place a grid on it and use the same um, method. But for now, we decided to leave this project aside due to time issues. And I'm not a computer expert. So that was quite difficult. It it seemed (laughs) like it
2: was much more more complex. Like you'd have to do some... The way that... um, animators do cgi modeling you know they might make a in, in a movie they might make the monster yeah. the creature out of clay or something and then do 3d imaging to you know generate this cgi creature for the movie it, it sounds like you'd have to do something like that where you three-dimensionally model the in, in a digital format the the evidence and that does sound much more complicated
0: yeah and I think it's it's quite easy to do for people that are familiar with that kind of um, uh, methods but I'm not so that's why we decided for now to to leave the project aside but uh, I think it's still uh, one topic for further research to how to uh, apply this location analysis to three-dimensional objects and how to analyze them because I think it's it's as important for for three-dimensional objects like bottles or knives or yeah anything guns. you can think of yeah guns yeah
2: well nuke if we could here we're just going to sort of wrap things up and let's kind of tie this all together because it, it looks like you first create a, a formal a formal network for this a, a formal uh, structured approach to activity level, and then you tested some specific approaches. What's, what's, uh, what's next? What, uh, what, what do you guys hope to test next? And what are the next steps towards completing your PhD?
0: Uh, Well, for my PhD, it's, um, I'm in my, in the final year. So I have one more experiment to go um, uh, to analyze. And that's an experiment with knives. And there, I want to try to uh, make a Bayesian network and then fill in as much uh, variables as I am uh, able to from experiments that I carried out. So I hope that will complete uh, the thesis uh, into a more complete uh, story. Yes. Now, if
2: if I was your PhD advisor... This is what I would have done to you. I would have required your last experiment or chapter to include an actual forensic scientist working in the field and how they would incorporate this information, what a sample report would look like. I would have forced you to gone all the way through towards the end and the, what what does the final product look like for court? That, yeah. that would have been my requirement.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's more I think we stay more in a like a technical um, way so we are not moving to how to report on this yeah. but I think we will do kind of the same like how can you just apply this in a case and then how can you assign most of the probabilities and what kind of likelihood ratios can you expect because that's yeah, still a question that, that, that I'm not um, uh, I, I don't know yet so that's is my biggest final um research question yeah if you get a
2: likelihood ratio of 10 for example which is not very good should you even really say anything at all if and when it's effectively inconclusive you know either way i mean yes it does lean a little bit one direction but is that very informative do jurors understand when you have such you know small likelihood ratios
0: yeah, yeah, and that's something I talked about with a DNA expert last week, actually. And um, that's that's, uh, and I asked him the same question, but he said, "Yeah, well, actually, it does because it depends on all case circumstances whether the court finds uh, it probative." Yeah, yeah. So that's um, so sometimes a likelihood ratio of ten can 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 just be that final uh, push they they need to a certain direction or not and sometimes it's also informative if the likelihood ratio is around one because can you say anything about it and that's also informative um, but i'm yeah i'm interesting in what the range is of likelihood ratios that i will find with such a Bayesian network
2: yeah no, i think it's, it's, it's between
0: like one and hundred. I don't think it will be much more, but yeah, yeah. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> we will All see. Right. Yeah, and I think in the future it's yeah. very, very. Yeah, it's this is just a start of a of a field um, where we just tried to to make the first steps, but I think there's so much to to um, study. Oh yeah, I, I I think it's it's there. Are, yeah there you can study like transfer probabilities all those kind of probabilities have to be explored but also maybe uh, ways to measure for instance the direction of a finger mark without having a reference present for example Mm -hmm. is it possible is it possible to do this objectively with like a computer program or anything that's kind of questions i'm thinking about and i think it's a yeah, it's just the start of a of a big. Yep. Yeah, yeah, there are so many possibilities for research you, in this you have a field. Whole career here. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe me, <laughs> but also other people. I think. I hope yeah, other people will also start thinking about this and thinking about finger marks in this different way um, to to open this new field of um, expertise. I will say, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that, and, and especially, you know, as it grows as well after the, the, you know, the, the base is set, I think even discussing with other forensic uh, examiners, you know, they may be really good at determining activity, but they may not understand exactly what they're looking at. So, uh, I think also part of it is, is, is in those discussions, you know, pulling out from them, you know, the, the exact, information that they're really considering important when they make their surprisingly accurate, uh, subjective assessments, you know, or what, what is it exactly that you're looking at? And then we can kind of put it you now, put this new thing into the model that isn't there already. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and then it could be even better and improved with that.
0: Yeah. I think it's very important to infer the research to collaborate with the actual examiners to see what kind of questions yeah. they come across and how we can solve uh or we can bring solutions to that it's very important yeah i agree with you
1: Anouk, thank you so much for for uh for you know, joining us on the podcast here this week and um and and sharing with uh, your research we, we, i think both glenn and i both really enjoyed the paper and and uh and you know, definitely hope that all the listeners out there um, we'll enjoy it as well and enjoyed our discussion. Yeah,
0: thanks for inviting me. I really liked it.
2: Yeah, thanks thanks Anuka. it was great to have you on. And um I I really look forward to seeing what uh what you guys publish next and please um let us uh, let us know when you have another publication
1: out.
0: Yes, I will, definitely.
1: All right. And, uh, here we are back. Uh, thank you so much to Anouk for joining us for that discussion. Um, I, I, really enjoyed that discussion and the, the framework that you know, she describes for how to evaluate these kinds of questions. So, um, but we do have another one in the series, uh, with another guest coming up next week. So, uh, hope everyone joins us again for that one.
2: Yeah, and uh, throw a few reminders out. I mentioned as well, uh, you know, if, if you know, I think in the last episode, last week's episode, you know, if you're interested in learning more about these kinds of things, you know, the University of Lausanne offers this online course in framing propositions, and certainly source level activity level propositions etc but if you are going to the international association for forensic science in australia this year the triannual conference pretty sure christoph shampoo is doing a workshop on activity level there as well so you know if you're interested in taking a workshop checking it out i'm sure it it's probably a preview to activity level. In fact, he's teaching it with his wife, Tasha Hicks-Champeau, who's one of the instructors in the online course as well. So it's a good opportunity
1: to to check that out. Uh, and a reminder about uh, a study that uh, Tom Busty is beginning. Right. He has a call out for
2: participants, fingerprint experts, and if you're interested in participating in his study... You can email him at busey B-U-S-E-Y, at indiana.edu. Tom would love to have you join the study. He is recruiting fingerprint experts to do comparisons under two different reporting conditions, one being we'll call it the current approach, identification, exclusion, and inconclusive versus a expanded OSAC five-point scale approach uh check it out it's uh i think it really will be helpful for the community and lay some of these questions to rest regarding the use of these conclusions
1: yep uh very much looking forward to that uh, you know we obviously a few weeks ago talked about uh those osac conclusions on the podcast uh so uh, if you missed that episode uh you know go back and hear us all it up and <laughs> on that topic so uh and then glenn you have a couple classes coming up
2: Yep, that's right. Uh, we're in January right now, but there's still time to register for uh, the Advanced ACB Applications course, which is April 20th through the 24th. That is in Hackensack, New Jersey. And then we have, uh, I'm teaching with John Black, the Sufficiency and Exclusion course. Uh, one is April 27th to May 1st. That will be in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And the other one is May 18th through the 22nd, and that will be in Palm Springs, Florida. So check either of those out if you're interested, or other classes, go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And check out courses if you're interested in taking a class from me if you've never done that before.
1: All right. Well, close out this episode here. Uh, If you have any questions for us – Anything you want to share with us for the show? Eric at RayForensics.com com or Glenn G L E N N at Services dot com. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed are those speaking and uh, not anyone else that they may work for. But uh, you can follow us uh, at Double Loop Pod on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, wpodcast.com dot com is our website. Where we've got uh, merchandise for sale and a bunch of old episodes and all sorts of good stuff. So uh, find us there online. And until next week, uh, talk to you guys later.
2: Bye, everybody. Have a good week.